Welcome to a special season of the Dyson House podcast at the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. I'm James Kafferke, and for five episodes, I'll be talking you through interviews with various experts on the nitty-gritty of global health security. Throughout the season, we'll touch on concepts from climate change to forensic pathology and their intersections with global health security, both broadly and more specifically in relation to the current COVID-19 pandemic. In service first of a broad, holistic introduction to the season, I've invited Professor Helen Evans to give us a better understanding of what it is exactly that we talk about when we say global health security. Hi, Helen. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, James. Pleasure to be here. It's a most appropriate topic at the moment. I definitely think so. I was wondering before we dived into global health security, whether you could give me an introduction to yourself, your work history and some of your interests. Sure. Well, I've worked in public and global health for about the last 30 years. Now I'm living in Melbourne, where I have an honorary appointment at the Nossal Institute for Global Health at Melbourne University. And I also sit on a number of boards, including the Burnett Institute here in Melbourne and the Fred Hollows Foundation. And I also sit on a number of technical reference groups, both globally and locally. So I sit on the technical reference group for Australia's Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security. And I've worked at both the national level with the Department of Health here. I managed the Communicable Diseases Program in the Department of Health here in Australia, in Canberra, for the first sort of half of the 1990s. I also managed the Office for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health for nearly seven years. And then for the last 10 years of my full-time employment, I moved to Geneva where I was first of all for five years the Deputy Executive Director at the Global Fund for AIDS, TB and Malaria. And then for five years I was the Deputy CEO at uh, Gavi the Vaccine Alliance. But my background is actually in social policy and planning, and I really moved across to public health in the early 90s. And so overall, my, my background's health policy, planning, management. I'm not medically trained, or indeed, I don't even have a scientific training, which surprises a lot of people. So yeah, that's probably a, enough about me. So given your breadth of experience, I think that puts you in a, a really good place to help me with what was for me in the process of exploring global health security and topics to cover in this podcast, the first and most intractable question for someone without any experience in it, which is, what exactly is global health security? Good question. And there's really no single agreed definition of global health security. It's evolving and evolving pretty rapidly at the moment. And what it means to people is significantly determined by where you live. So the narrow definition that most people would look at is that for a range of reasons, we face an increasing number of emerging and re-emerging pandemics and epidemics that happen very quickly and are hugely destabilising. And it was well represented a couple of years ago in the film Pandemic, and now as we are all experiencing real life with COVID-19. So I think for people living in high-income countries like Australia, we're inevitably going to be most interested in being protected against new threats that might affect us directly. So that's really significantly about keeping our borders safe. But a broader definition that's really emerging, broader than we've more typically used in past, is that global health security is not only about epidemics and pandemics. It includes also ongoing issues such as 
low immunization rates, and we experience that in Australia where you get measles and whooping cough. Actually, we have high immunization rates here, but when you have low immunization rates, you have epidemics of measles, whooping cough, diphtheria, etc. It encompasses vector-borne diseases that's such as dengue and malaria. And one that people aren't probably most familiar with is, is antimicrobial resistance, and that includes drug resistance to diseases like TB and malaria, which are actually right on the doorstep here in Australia. Antimicrobial resistance is really increasing rapidly and is pretty scary. And you might ask, well, why a broader definition? And I think that to start with, a narrow definition won't work if it's only focused on pandemics, since actually every pandemic starts as a small outbreak. And I think unless we take the opportunity now to break out of a cycle and panic and neglect, sort of boom-bost, which has really characterised our approach to infectious diseases to date, we're not going to get these under control and they are going to increase. Peter Sands, who's the executive director of the Global Fund for AIDS, TB and Malaria, said recently, even more importantly, a narrow definition won't work if the definition of health security only encompasses infectious diseases that threaten the lives of people in rich countries. I mean, apart from the fact that this is a very dubious uh, morality of such a distinction, we're actually all only as safe as our weakest link. And those living in countries with weak health systems and are most vulnerable to new diseases will only buy into and support uh, a new approach to global health security if it addresses the threats that affect them most. There was an interesting example by Dr. Tedros, who's the head of WHO. Recently, he was saying that there's been well, there was a massive Ebola outbreak in Africa several years ago, but there, more recently, over the last 12 months, there's been a re-emergence of Ebola in DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. And he visited a village there where they'd been resistant to the Ebola workers that had been sent in. And he, he was talking to the head people there about why was the community resistant to such a terrible disease. And They said to him, well, we only had one Ebola case here and suddenly we had this huge health team come in, you know, in their hazmat suits, etc. And yet a couple of months ago, our children were dying of a malaria outbreak we had and we asked for help. We really needed and no one came to us. So, you know, we need to, to all work on this together. And I think it's interesting because I think in Australia probably for many people this is their first experience of what it is to fear for the safety of your family from infectious diseases. But this is a daily experience for many people in, in low-income countries. So for me the definition of health security should certainly be broader and emphasise the need to health, strengthen health systems. I mean we see clearly the importance of a robust health system where even in high-income countries where, for example, the US and UK are really struggling to respond to COVID, that we've got to have an approach that is to prevent, detect and respond to infectious, emerging infectious diseases and potential pandemics. That's a very interesting answer. I was wondering if you could tell me why you think global health security is so important across the spectrum of things. Well... It's really interesting because I think, you know, governments and in international relations, there's a lot of talk about defence security, cyber security, biosecurity, economic security. 
But for me, health security, global health security, should also be considered as an essential pillar of security. We can see, and I think people are just really overwhelmed by the massive destabilising to the economy, to movement of people, to supply chains that a, a pandemic such as we're experiencing at the moment can impact on countries, but also globally. That's why I think it is incredibly important. In terms of that global reach of global health security, who do you see as the important players in global health security worldwide? Well, I actually think everybody needs to be a player. You need a bottom-up approach and a top-down approach. I, I said earlier the example of needing to have communities themselves understand and be able to respond and to be able to be part of it. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to detect it or prevent it. it, it it's about behaviour change. And then at the country level, you need national leadership. And globally, you need a, a collaboration across the globe because, you know, infectious diseases aren't really the slightest bit interested in national borders. And unless you have collaboration, you're not going to get it under control. I think organisations like WHO, well, WHO really has, has lead responsibility in, in terms of technical and professional advice. But it also needs people right across uh, the spectrum to respond. So, yeah, bottom up, top down, globally uh, and nationally. I think it's regrettable that, you know, a few years ago, I think there was an increasing recognition that we're very globally interconnected and that we need to recognise and work with and collaborate. No country alone can deal with things like this on their own. And yet over the last few years, there's been an increasing focus and a retreat back to nationalism and popularism at a time when we actually need to be collaborating and cooperating more globally. So, yeah, I think everybody has a part to play, but it definitely needs global leadership as well. Mm. Do you think the WHO is where that global leadership would come from? I think it's where the technical and professional advice should come from. So I think that the WHO is incredibly important. I mean, it has WHO has the capacity to convene the best and the brightest and the most knowledgeable experts in the health area together. So yes, I think I think it it has it has a, a role to lead. It also has its problems. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it it has been incredibly bureaucratic in its approach. I would say overly scientific and medical in its approach. When often these issues arise in a broader context, but definitely it has a key role to play. And I think I don't think it's the time to to sideline it because you do need a central point of coordination. Having said that, I think this isn't a comment on WHO, but I think that increasingly there's been a recognition that we need to talk about One Health. And for those who aren't, don't work in the health and health security area, that term may not be one you're familiar with. But what the One Health approach, which is, is really only emerged in the last decade, I guess, is a recognition that human health, animal health and the environment are closely intertwined. So close collaboration is essential. Most of the emerging new infections are zoonotic. That is, they 
they're caused by bacteria, viruses or parasites that have jumped from an animal to humans who in turn pass it on to other humans. So unless we look at the links with the animals, so unless we collaborate between the health people, the animal health people and environmental factors, we're also not going to be able to get on top of these emerging uh, infectious diseases. Mm, that certainly seems like a significant impetus to work together in solving some of these issues. And on these issues, I was wondering if you could give me what you saw to be as sort of a, a broad synopsis of some of the key issues facing global health security or, or where the problems lie today. Well, and I think you've already touched on one, James. I think there's been a lot of, in terms of uh, global landscape in health, there have been a lot of institutional changes. So there's an increase in philanthropic funding and, and, a, and a disenchantment with the UN system, which includes, uh, includes WHO. So I think that impacts on our, our capacity to work collaboratively. There's been a change in the economic landscape with a shift in, in, in where the economies are growing. There's been a demographic shift. But I think probably in relation to, to health security, there are two that I'd really point out. I'd talk about, I'd, I would say the movement of people in the refugee crisis is, is very big. We've got something like 68, 69 million people who are without homes, who are stateless citizens, and 52% of those are under 18. So that's huge, and they're hugely vulnerable to disease and illness. But the other one I would which I've, I've already alluded to, is climate change. <clears throat> I mean, talking about perhaps 60% of the population will be displaced by 2050 because of extreme weather events, emerging and re-emerging diseases, as I've talked about, food security and undernourishment. And I think that this is going to be a big issue in terms of working together, but in terms of threats for global health security. Mm. Almost as a case study, I was wondering if you could walk me through the refugee crisis and its impacts on global health security, why the movement of people in that way is so significant. Well, I think most people will have seen images and perhaps read about and heard of people in large refugee camps in Australia, perhaps Cox Bazaar is the one that, that people might be most familiar with. These are the Rohingya people who fled. There are you know, hundreds of thousands of people in this rocky, barren piece of land living under canvas and tin, etc. And when people are closely packed together like that, are often in poor health, poor nutrition, etc. They are so much more vulnerable to infectious diseases and to the spread of infectious diseases. So I think that just having these large numbers of stateless people and many of them in refugee camps or living, you know, in peri-urban centres, etc., they often don't have access because they don't have, nobody takes responsibility for them they don't have access to health services. And I think that's a huge issue for us all globally. Perhaps if I could add to that, I think in Australia and perhaps in high-income countries, we, we, we talk a lot about refugees and stateless people. And we tend to think that it's high-income countries that are, are 
are being asked to take responsibility or take a greater share of responsibility. In fact, it's the countries in uh, close proximity to where many of the displaced people are coming from that are bearing the biggest burden. You know, Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, etc., are, are where the, the large number of stateless people currently live. And these are countries that are themselves not wealthy. So there's a threat of destabilizing those countries themselves by the very burden of refugees and stateless people that they're they're actually accommodating. Mm. Yeah. And and on the flip side with the other issue that you signposted, what do you think that the impetus to engage with climate change is? Like what needs to be done to impact some of these potential harms to global health security and and if nothing is done what will happen i think if nothing's done then we're just going to have an increasing cycle of health security incidents and increasing numbers of stateless people that you know there's a vicious cycle that will keep on uh keep on going it's in australia it's regrettably become very political and That's not the case necessarily in other countries. They've recognised that climate change needs to be proactively managed and responded to. This is my personal view. I would have thought that the the terrible bushfires we had in Australia were a wake-up call, that it's, it's something we absolutely need to address. I mean, if I'm talking locally, locally rather than globally at the moment, I think that the people in the bushfire affected areas who are now being affected uh, by COVID-19 in Australia are seeing this double whammy. Now, we're a wealthy country and we've, you know, government's responded and there's been a lot of support put out. If you look at that in countries that are low income with weak systems, they largely informal economies, no income security system, then the danger is these countries descend into chaos. And that instability impacts on all of us eventually. I think it's in everybody's interests that we have you know, sustainable, peaceful, peace and stability and the security that goes with it that benefits everybody. Mm. Do you think global health security is especially relevant for Australia or for Australia as a member of the Indo-Pacific? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Asia-Pacific region's historically been the global epicentre for emerging infectious diseases. So it's a hugely important issue for this region. And that's why I was really pleased that the Australian government took the initiative and a broader approach when it launched the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security in the late 2017. I think that was a really important initiative and it, it has a strong focus on anticipating, averting and arresting infectious diseases. So that was great. I, I also would say that At the same time, Australia contributing as a good regional citizen will help strengthen positive regional relationships. I mean, I know it sounds corny, but there's soft diplomacy, and I think Australia can contribute enormously in this region and build really strong collaborative relationships by contributing. People remember these things. They remember having studied in Australia. They remember working with Australia, with Australian experts. We have a huge amount of, of... infectious disease and health expertise here. So I think it's, it's, it's a broader contribution that Australia makes to the region. The final thing I want to ask you today is, 
if there's one thing that you could have people know about global health security or, or one larger concept, what would that be? That none of us are quarantined or immune from it uh, and that everybody needs to take it seriously and play their part, whatever that is, big and small. We can't just pull down the shutters and hope it'll go away. Everybody needs to take responsibility. Thank you very much for this introduction to global health security. It's been very useful in in crystallizing some of these ideas in my mind and hopefully in the minds of our listeners. That's a pleasure, James. Thanks. That concludes the first episode of this season. With a clearer picture in our minds now of what global health security means, we'll be well equipped to engage with its institutions and the threats facing it. Until next time, when we'll be speaking to Dr. Vivian Lim about the World Health Organization, also known as the WHO.